Our Old Testament reading and the sermon text this morning is Psalm 119, verses 161 through 176. So the last two stanzas of Psalm 119, verses 161 through 176. Hear the word of God. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Sends our reading from the Old Testament. A question that uh, we might ask ourselves is uh, how things go for us spiritually when things in life are going very poorly. You might wonder if you had to live in a place in this world that had severe religious oppression, how would it go for you spiritually? And these are questions worth asking because this is the situation of our psalmist. The author of Psalm 119 had an extremely difficult life. He tells us uh, in the midst of this psalm that he had been a great rebel against God, that God had brought trouble into his life because of that. God had made him a sojourner from the land of Israel. It seems that he had uh, driven him away from his home uh, into a foreign land. And we know that the psalmist was then living under great oppression. He was persecuted by powerful people, and not just in small ways, but they sought his very life. If we're feeling sorry for ourselves sometimes, we might ask ourselves if we've experienced anything as bad as what Psalm, the author of Psalm 119 has experienced in his. And our psalmist, as we come here to these last two stanzas of this psalm, It's not as if the psalmist hasn't been thinking about these things. These things have been on his mind as he has 
set this beautiful poem before us. And yet, as he comes to the end of this long psalm, he doesn't put before us uh, a spirit of bitterness, a spirit of complaining, but he shows a remarkable spiritual vitality, a remarkable spiritual maturity as he wrestles with his status, his place before God in this world. Now, a psalmist in saying what he does at the end of the psalm, he's not puffing himself up. He's not creating a false picture of his spiritual health. We can see that he ends on a note of profound honesty. He acknowledges that there is much that he does not know. There's much that he can't do, much he can't control about his situation. And yet we see here that the psalmist devotes himself to his God. He devotes himself to God with a profound faith. And this faith has blossomed into a godly character. A godly character well-suited for him, an old covenant saint living in difficult circumstances, but anticipating the great deliverance that God would bring for his people. So let's begin by looking at the first of these two stanzas, the uh, Sin and Shin uh, stanza, verses 161 through 168. Now, this stanza begins with a simple statement Princes persecute me without cause. And this is something that we've seen earlier in Psalm 119. If we had read this whole psalm, uh, we would have seen similar phrases uh, used earlier. The psalmist is not simply being hounded by wicked people, But you might say he is suffering official persecution. He is suffering persecution from civil authorities. And it's probably the case that this is the most fearful kind of persecution. It's one thing when just ordinary neighbors might oppress true believers, but when powerful people do it, that is even more frightening. And you can put this in some context is that when God's old covenant people, Israel, when they sinned, remember God had promised in the law of Moses that he would send judgment against his people if they disobeyed him. And the way that the Lord often brought that judgment was by bringing foreign authorities, foreign political authorities against his people. You read the historical narratives in the Old Testament and you'll see it was, it was Pharaoh in Egypt who would come against his people, or the king of Syria, the king of Assyria, the king of Babylon. It was powerful monarchs who would come and execute God's judgment against his people. Now, this doesn't mean that, that these foreign rulers acted justly when they did this, Very often we find later that God will bring judgment against these foreign rulers for the bad way that they treated Israel. And this is certainly at least part of why our psalmist can say, the princes persecute me without cause. It's not as if these foreign princes had any just cause against our psalmist. 
But the psalmist is still, he's suffering under them. And in the background is God's judgment against his covenant people. So that is the opening line, the first half verse of this stanza. And yet, what is so remarkable about the rest of this stanza, the remaining 15, 16ths of this stanza, is that the psalmist does not say a single thing more about these persecutions. He expresses no bitterness. He does not complain at all. Instead, he reflects entirely upon his spiritual virtues, upon the blessings that he has from God. And before we start looking at this in a little bit of detail, might just step back for a moment and think about this. We who are Christians living in the West, we feel ourselves, at least many Christians in the West, feel ourselves quite concerned about shifts in the culture, about imminent threats of political opposition, something that, you might say, has some analogy to what this psalmist was feeling. I mean, even though we have it so much better than the psalmist, so many of us as Christians, we feel a certain sort of threat, a certain fear. And we might ask ourselves, what is our response to that? Do we sit around complaining? Do we feel ourselves growing bitter? Do we feel that we are suffering something, are losing something that is so valuable uh, that we are uh, uh, not going to have any longer? Or does our response look like the psalmist's? The psalmist, it seems, shows us a godly response to suffering, especially to opposition for the sake of the faith. It is worth thinking about this, especially if we are tempted to feel oppressed. Well, let's look at how the psalmist, how he responds to his persecution. We could begin just taking it right in order with the second part of verse 161, second part of the first verse of this stanza. But my heart stands in awe of your words. The idea that princes would persecute you is something that would bring fear. Persecution is a fearful thing, and we might describe that as the fear of man. What is the psalmist's first response to the fear of man? You might say it's the fear of God. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord and his word. Throughout the scriptures, one of the most basic attitudes or virtues of the godly person is the fear of God. The fear of the Lord. And that is not a fear of terror. It is a fear of respect a fear of awe, a fear of reverence. And one of the wonderful things about the fear of God is that it relieves us of the fear of man. If you truly fear God, if you recognize his sovereignty, 
if you recognize that the omnipotent God is on your side and is fighting for you, how powerful do powerful people really seem? The psalmist stands in awe at God and his word, and that gives a great defense against this fear of human persecution. The next thing that the psalmist says, verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Joy is his next response. What is joy? Well, joy is a kind of delight. And joy in the Lord, joy as a virtue, is a delight in the Lord. And a delight in all the blessings that we have from the Lord, including his word, which gives us such good news and provides such encouragement for us. Now, it might be tempting for us, when we're not feeling very joyful in the Lord, to think, well, if things were going better, if I didn't have so many things to be anxious about, so many things weighing me down, I could certainly be more joyful. But that is actually exactly the opposite of the way Scripture ordinarily talks about joy. As we saw in Romans 5 earlier, we see it in James 1. The New Testament, in fact, emphasizes that we rejoice in our sufferings, in the midst of our afflictions. The Lord, in fact, builds joy in his people. One of the primary ways is through sufferings. As counterintuitive as that seems. If you think you're joyful, when things are going really well, you might ask yourself, is my joy really in the Lord? Is it really in his blessings? Is it really in his salvation? Or is it in earthly things that are giving me temporary pleasure and temporary security? We rejoice in the Lord and in his blessings, even in the midst of afflictions. This is the psalmist's response to persecution. And then verse 163, the next verse, he says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. He turns from joy to love. And this really is, these are natural things to associate with each other, joy and love. Why is it that we can rejoice in God and his law? Well, we can do that if we love him. We rejoice in things that we love. If you really love a person, you will delight in that person's company, in that person's presence. To say that you love someone and you hate being with that person, well, there's something that's not quite right. Because we love the Lord, we love his word, we rejoice in that. The psalmist is someone who rejoices in God because he loves God and his word. And then he turns in verse 164, you can see, you see the progression of the psalmist's thought. Verse 164, he says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. What is the entirely appropriate response if we fear the Lord, if we rejoice in the Lord, if we love the Lord? We praise him. We worship him. 
I mean, this is what we are doing right now. We have come together to worship the Lord. And we do that as his people who fear him and love him and delight in him. Brothers and sisters, if well, you are obviously here to worship, but if worshiping the Lord is not something that you look forward to, not something that you delight in as you are here, not something that you find encouraging and comforting. I mean, that is a problematic thing. But you might say it's a symptom of something else. It's a symptom of a deeper problem of not fearing the Lord as we ought, of not loving him as we ought, is not rejoicing in him. Let us pray that the Lord would build that fear and that joy and that love and that it might flow forth into praise so that we might worship him individually and together as we ought. Seven times a day, he says, I praise you. That is, seven is the perfect number. Praise is to be complete. It is to be entire. We give all of our praise and our worship to the Lord. And the psalmist is still not done here as he's describing this remarkable spiritual state. Verse 165, he says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. It seems like the psalmist is kind of outdoing himself here. Remember, he has begun this stanza by saying, Princes are persecuting me. The civil authorities are oppressing him. Sort of by definition, that doesn't sound very peaceful. It doesn't sound like a peaceful condition. And yet the psalmist says, not just peace, great peace, have those who love your law, which is a way of dis- the psalmist like uses to describe those who are devoted to God, who belong to their Lord. Our psalmist is obviously not talking about earthly peace. He is not at earthly peace. But there is a spiritual peace that the psalmist is describing, which is remarkable. He is at peace with God. He has been a rebel, but he has repented. He has turned back to his God. He has put his confidence in him. And now he is enjoying great peace. Nothing can make him stumble. What a remarkable statement for one who has indeed struggled with his devotion to God in the past. And he takes it another step further in the next verse, verse 166. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Here he turns to the virtue of hope. And hope is something that looks to the future. Hope is a future-oriented character trait. By hope, we have confidence that the Lord is going to fulfill all of his promises to his people. There's not a single thing that the Lord has committed himself to that he will not carry out. And you can see how this is such an appropriate thing for the psalmist to mention here. He has great peace spiritually, 
But he is not at peace in this world. And yet he has hope. He is, you might say, he is content before the Lord, but he is not fully satisfied. He knows that the Lord has not just promised an inner spiritual peace. The Lord has promised for his people a complete peace, a holistic peace. A peace from outward persecution, from all outward oppression. The Lord will do that for his people. And so the psalmist is looking in hope for the day when he will no longer suffer persecution. When his great peace will extend to every aspect of his life. Just as we get to this point in our text, I just want to call your attention back for a moment to Romans 5, 1 through 5, which we read earlier in the service. It is rather remarkable that in that really short text that Paul describes the character of the Christian. In a sense, right in the midst of Paul's great description of Christian salvation in the first part of the book of Romans, there in those early verses of Romans 5, he describes in this, in this concise way what the Christian life looks like. And what does he say about the Christian life? I'm just going to remind you of what Paul says and think about how many of the things that Paul says are captured exactly here in these verses we've been looking at in Psalm 119. Paul says in, said in Romans 5 that those who have been justified by faith, that is all of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose sins have been forgiven and pronounced righteous in Christ, you have peace. With God, to our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace. Doesn't mean you have earthly peace, but you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on in Romans 5 to say, because of this, we rejoice in our sufferings. We can rejoice in suffering because we have peace with God as those who are justified. And he goes on to say that this suffering in which we rejoice, it produces endurance, which produces character, and this produces hope. And this hope will not put us to shame. Our psalmist describes a response to suffering that sounds an awful lot like this new covenant response to our justification by faith that Paul sets before us. And as the psalmist reaches the end of this stanza, this sin and shin stanza, did you note that he describes here his obedience to God's commands, to God's testimonies? So in verse 166, he says, I do your commandments. And then in both verses 167 and 168, he speaks of keeping God's testimonies his precepts, and his testimonies. And he says in verse 168 that he does so because all of his ways are before God. Now, for sinners, the idea of our ways being before God is not an entirely comfortable thing. It's not immediately obvious 
that we want our ways to be evident before God. There are a lot of things we would want to keep secret before God. And yet for those who are trusting in the Lord, who know the fear of God, the joy of Christ, who have peace and hope, we may keep the ways of our God, we might do the commands of our God. Not hiding anything before God, not because our ways are perfect, but we know that our God is merciful. We know that our God is one who sanctifies us, who will continue to shape us. We pursue the life of obedience before our God with our ways open before God, honestly before God knowing that he will continue to do his good work within us. Well, that brings us to the end of the stanza. And perhaps to us, for us and our sensibilities, this would be a perfect way to end Psalm 119. I mean, it presents the psalmist at his most spiritually mature, we might say. It presents this sort of, almost this New Testament spirituality, I mean, what could be better than a Romans 5 kind of spirituality? And yet, that wouldn't quite provide an entirely accurate picture of our psalmist's spiritual condition. Psalm 119 is honest. It's not about public image. Our psalmist is not interested in ending the psalm in a way that's going to make him look as good as possible. So our psalmist proceeds, and we see in this last stanza, we are reminded, he is a suffering man. He still bears the scars of his rebellion in the past. He still bears the scars of the punishment from God that he has had to endure. And he is not at all sure how God is going to work out all things for his good. He believes that God will, but how? That is not entirely clear to him. One of the things that we see here, if we just look first at the the first half of this stanza, verses 169 through 172, we see see a pattern uh, that is going to be somewhat repeated in the second half of the stanza. We see the psalmist, might say, offering petition to God and then praising his God. So the first two verses of this Tav stanza, the last stanza, verses 169 and 170, the the psalmist offers petitions to God. He offers requests before God. And that's actually kind of remarkable. I mean, there have been plenty of requests that the psalmist has offered throughout Psalm 119. But in the previous stanza, what we've just been looking at, the psalmist did not offer a single request. He does not offer a single request. Petition to God. And yet here, verse 169, let my cry come before you. Give me understanding. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. The psalmist is acknowledging his neediness. He comes back to that yet again. He needs understanding. He doesn't, he doesn't know the ways of God. He doesn't, there's so much that is murky for him. He needs deliverance according to God's word. Remember, he's still under persecution. He needs the deliverance of God. 
And yet for this psalmist, even as he offers these pleas for help for God, where does he go? Verses 171 and 172, he turns back to worship. He turns back to praise. Verse 171, my lips will pour forth praise. For you teach me your statutes. He wants understanding, and he acknowledges the Lord is a teacher. And he praises him for that. Verse 172, my tongue will sing of your word. This is one of the things we do in our worship. We we burst forth in song. Because all God's commands are right. And you see, this this is a very helpful pattern for us all to keep in mind. The natural thing for us when we pray is to do what? Is to pray about ourselves. To ask God to help us. To provide for us. To relieve us of our problems. Well, the psalmist does some of that. Nothing wrong with doing that. And yet, that is not the heart of our prayer. The heart of our prayer is the praising of our God. Our prayers are about him, not about us, ultimately. What a wonderful pattern that we see. We offer our pleas, but our pleas are to turn into praise and singing before our God. And the final four verses of our stanza, you know, so there are are eight verses in all of these stanzas. And since the first four verses in this stanza follow a pattern of petition and then praise, we might expect something similar in the second half. And we sort of get that. You might see in verse 173, the psalmist says, Let your hand be ready to help me. See, again, he's offering this petition, asking for God's help. And then in verse 174, he doesn't exactly petition God for something, but he says, I long for your salvation, O Lord. He's expressing the fact that he needs God's saving work. He's long idea of longing for it. He's expressing the idea that he's lacking something. And then in verse 175, we expect that psalmist might express praise to God, and he doesn't disappoint us. He says, let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. The psalmist has asked for life so many times in this psalm. And we see here the psalmist is not asking for his life to be extended for selfish reasons, but he asks that he might live so that he might praise the Lord. God will extend his life so that he might worship. Where do we then expect this psalm to end? We expect some note of praise, some note of singing. Wouldn't it be so appropriate that the psalmist would end with an exalted note of worship before the Lord. And yet that's not exa- it's not at all what he gives us. The last verse of this long psalm, he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Seems like kind of an anticlimax. Confessing how weak and helpless he is, asking for God to come seek Come look for him. He doesn't even profess that he does or keeps God's commands, simply that he remembers them. I know this is an awkward way to end the sermon, but 
next Sunday, I'll be back in the pulpit next Sunday morning, and uh, we will look at Psalm 119 as a whole. I promise not to read the whole thing, but we will consider Psalm 119 as a whole and how we read it as New Covenant Christians, and we'll come back to this final verse and reflect more on how this ending is helpful for us as we seek to interpret this psalm. So let us now turn to the Lord in prayer.